Harrison Godgling, good morning. Hey, good morning, man. So we were just talking off uh, air that uh, it's the slippery slope now. You just got all warm, dried out, all the all the daylight, and you're already thinking about the slow decline into winter? It's hard not to, to be honest, especially <laughs> um, with building something for me personally. It's the beginning of the end. It's, it marks uh, a time in which, you know, everyone has to have their ducks in a row. It's like, oh, crap, we're only a few short months away from hunting season. And then that's only a couple weeks away from the first frost and then then winter. Yeah. When that clock is ticking, it, 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 I've, I've never had the clock tick like it ticks when you're trying to build something. Trying to get everybody arranged, get out. You're, you're fighting the weather. You're fighting the everything. Everything has to fall into line. This person has to get here to do this, and then this person can do this, but this person can't do this until that person does that. Ooh, yeah, clock. Yeah, it's it's a tough thing to think about, you know, because I still don't even have my house dried in yet. I went and picked up six more windows yesterday, um, and I have to install two windows that are about almost two hundred and fifty pounds each. So I'm not looking forward to that, but. So you got Everything's the falling into place. You got the windows on the on the lower part done, right? No, I got most of them done up top. Um, I got to get a bucket truck to uh, lift myself up to install the last three windows up top because they're like twenty five ish, twenty seven feet off the ground. Are you like paying as you go? Am I what? I'm sorry. Paying as you go. Uh, yeah, everything's out of pocket. Okay, nice. That's a that's a that's a good way to do it. I think I've. I've been paying more attention to how other people build their homes and I have a couple of friends who are, who are doing the pay as you go. And one guy is just like, he's paying for the, uh, he's doing the pad and then he'll wait a little bit and then he'll pour the foundation and then wait a little bit more. So it's going to be a longer process, but, um, yeah, there's, there's pros and cons to each method and that one would be nice and that you're not going super in debt to a, a bank for 30 years. Um, and then losing your mind when you have contractors trying to build it all at once and it's taking longer than you anticipated because yeah. everything does. And then, you know, you're freaking out about it, but I'm still trying to not to freak out too hard about it. Cause our ultimate plan is to be out of here before sheep season. Yeah. Nice. Uh, my buddy Rob was, uh, the, um, foreman on our construction and it was he was super nice because he was super meticulous and you could tell he was stressing out just as much if not more than me which was nice because that mean that you know he cared about the product um and so he was rather than just coming to me with problems he would come to me with problem and potential solutions or let me know hey i'm not really sure uh, how we're going to solve this but we might do this this and so i had absolute uh, faith in him which was <clears throat> real nice but yeah, that, that's got to be a pretty interesting dynamic to hire a friend to undertake such a personal um, thing for you to do, especially with, I'm sure, a lot of money involved in it as well. Yeah. I think the chance to <clears throat> the chance to ruin a friendship might be pretty high on projects like that. Yeah, I think there's a couple, couple high-stress um, – situations i guess in in life but it all works out basically the same so whether you're talking about someone building your home or a hunting partner or roommate in college or whatever i think there's a basic sort of mutual respect is such an important thing to have and in this case 
he had respect for me. I had respect for him. I knew that he's he is a builder. He is a contractor. So it's not like a buddy who says, "Hey, man, you give me money, I could do it." Like that that has happened before, where you have a friend over to help you fix something, and they it becomes pretty clear that they don't really know what they're doing, and they're excited at the opportunity to have a project to learn with no consequences. But they should feel like there's consequences because they're working on their buddy's thing. Um, motor, engine, flooring, whatever. So, um, yeah, I definitely had respect for him as a builder, also as someone who would take it seriously and someone who would get it done. Um, and then we had conversations about building stuff, and it was, I think part of it too was Abby and I are not super high maintenance, um, so we didn't add a whole lot of stress or additional stress to it. Uh, but, yeah, it was definitely there was potential to have some um, – friendship hurt going into it and i think by recognize that recognizing that it really helped things out um i know to to i guess to equate that to hunting i think the same thing matters you can be really good friends with someone outside of hunting but when you go to hunt with them you just you have different methods you have different ways of going about things there's and there's not this hey there's another person here that's hunting with me let's consider them let's think about what they want to do um, let's make sure that, you know, you, you come prepared and you're ready to go and you're physically able and all those sort of things that would, uh, um, destroy a hunt. You know, just that mutual respect thing is, is such a important skill to have. Absolutely. Yeah. I've, I've taken, um, back in 2016, I, I went with a group of four friends out moose hunting and, and we shot a moose and everything. And it was, you know, great fun. Cause it was just great camaraderie and everything. Um, and then me and one of the guys went out the next year, um, and we were great friends, you know, and when it was just me and him one-on-one and things weren't going well, we weren't seeing animals. We weren't really seeing sign calling wasn't working multiple days in a row. It was, he got bummed out real quick and he made it very vocal that he wasn't pleased with the lack of progress. And it was just one of those things where it's like. I don't control this. You don't control this. Like there's no reason to be negative, you know? And then after the fact, it was like, yep. Okay. I'm not hunting with him again. Yeah. And, and I had to talk with him about it and he was pretty hurt and it was like, Oh man, that stinks. Yeah. I don't know. Sometimes you can't control. It's not necessarily that it's even this person's bad. It's just that it's different. You know, the different styles, the styles don't match. It's not a character flaw if you can't hunt with someone or if, if you don't really feel like hunting with them or fishing with them, same thing. It's just, you know, the styles are different. And that's uh, not a knock on anybody. Yeah. And especially, you know, when your hunting partner just wants to start drinking beer at 10 a.m. and keep drinking throughout the rest of the day, it's like, I don't want to do that. Like, I'll have a beer or two at night around the campfire. But, like, during the day, you're operating machinery running four wheelers in sketchy situations like yeah no i don't want to do that yeah yeah that's yeah that's a that's that's rough um my dad taught me it was the old vince lombardi if you're on time you're late yep so i i just feel very uncomfortable if i'm late and so i i just i hate being late i hate being late um and other people are just a little more casual about those sort of things and that can be kind of irritating, but ultimately at some point you're going to be late because of something. Um, but yeah, just based on how you're brought up or how you pr- approach the thing and what, how you define the thing, how you define what a fishing trip is, how you define what a hunt is, has a big role in that. 
I told you, or actually Ryan and I probably both told you about the guy up on the north slope on the uh, caribou hunt where it was foggy and so no one was really doing any glassing and there was one area where uh, a couple people had been camping. And so we were up there and we were kind of glassing and the guy rolled it, just walked up to our, our truck and he had his uh, 10 mm on his chest and um, had the clip in and, you know, he's talking about how all morning they'd been drinking Red, um, not Red Bull. What's the, what's the gum? Fireball. Fireball. Yeah. Uh, been, <laughs> been drinking Fireball in the morning while it was foggy and now the fog was starting to lift. I'm thinking, okay, this guy's been drinking Fireball in his tent all morning. And now he's walking around with his 10 mm on his on his chest, just talking to people. Well, what what are we doing here? What what is this? But that was he was up from Kansas, and he was excited for the hunt. And probably how he defined the hunt was, it's going to be a great party on the tundra. If they get a a bull, then cool. If not, you know, no big deal, I guess. Um, which that's that's not a bad attitude to have. That sort of, hey man, I'm just out here to enjoy it. That's great. That's a great attitude to have. But if that means then that you're gonna you know, maybe put people at risk or you're not really going to care about it. And your other hunting buddies want to go, go hard and get after it. And you just want to hang out and drink. That's that conflict is going to be kind of tough. Yeah. And for me, you know, having a couple kids and limited amount of time off, it's, I'm super focused when it comes to hunting about exactly how long, you know, I'm going to be out for exactly what we're, our goal is, the ground that we're going to be covering and we have you know i i want to i'm there to enjoy the scenery but i'm also there to take an animal i'm not there to just hang out like if i come back without an animal it is like gosh dang it i just wasted x amount of days or whatever and it's x amount of money on gas and it's like crap i gotta go out again and when can i find the time and no it it, the way that i operate now has changed quite a bit over the past few years and i'm glad to have found a, a hunting partner that is in that same situation so yeah. Yeah, it's down here hunting blacktail. It's nice because you can go out a lot of times. There's not that pressure. You definitely want to get one, but you know because there's not such a sacrifice, you don't have to go super super far to at least get an, a potential opportunity. Um, so you can go, you know, 3 for 35. If you go th- hunting 35 days and you only get three deer that's totally fine that's a horrible batting average but you had a lot of experiences you end up getting the deer but going up north for a caribou or a moose like if i go up for seven days it has to happen in those seven days and we're gonna have to work hard to make it happen because it's not going to accidentally happen especially with something like moose so there is a little bit more uh more pressure can't be as casual and can't have that same batting average that i have down here with different species and i think some people that that come up and they sacrifice all the money or whatever they do, they save to come up. And for some of them, it's just the experience and you find that they don't really want to work hard or they find they don't want to work hard, or maybe they didn't want to work hard either way. And Hey, that's up to them. It's their money. And then other people that leads to that desperation of, I have to make it happen right now. Cause I talked a lot about it to a lot of people and I bragged about how I'm going to go up caribou hunting. And so if I don't come back with one, everyone's going to make fun of me. And so that can lead to, um, it's kind of swinging in the wrong direction where you're too desperate rather than not taking it seriously. Yeah. And, and that can, you know, change the course of your next hunt too. If you put all this pressure on yourself and you strike out and then it's like, Oh my gosh, now it's really crunch time. And it's like, it's all season's almost over and I really want to bring home some food and everything. And, you know, it, especially if you 
someone in your position where you're down there and you want to go all the way to the top of Alaska, you know, there's a lot of money involved. And so if you, if you try and equate the travel money and everything it takes for you to take home 80 pounds of meat, don't ever try and do the math to see <laughs> yeah. what it costs per pound. But yeah. it's, it's the fact that it's like you're out there, you're getting an animal that's living its life every day, getting eaten by bugs, having horrible winters, getting chased around by wolves and stuff. But for you, it's, you know, it's about, I know exactly where that meat came from. I'm going to treat this animal with respect versus go to the store. I'm just going to buy this tube of pink meat that may or may not be disgusting. Yeah. Well, did you see that? Uh, I think they're, they're, is it the FDA is allowing um, lab raised chicken or something like that? Um, raised chicken. I think. Uh, That's terrible. Meat grown in the laboratory. Yeah. There you go. World's first lab-grown chicken strips. Cool. That's great. <laughs> meat without animal slaughter. The future of lab-grown meat. Good Lord. Yeah, the U.S. approves chicken made from cultivated cells, the nation's first lab-grown meat. Who knows what the long-term side effects oh, of that kind of stuff will be. Yeah. Uh, processed food is horrible. Science behind it. Um, you listen to some of these people talking about the... Um, mold um resistant strains of whatever we have i don't know if it's mold and pests and all, and all that stuff the, the science that we have put into uh making sure that we yield enough crops to feed the people um is is really gross and that's why you know the healthy food when, when you look at people that live over in in italy or whatnot and well, they eat a lot of carbs well they're that's, those are different carbs like that's real food uh, being made out of real plants. Whereas over here, our carbs are so, I don't know, you should probably listen to a different podcast if you want some real insight about, uh, <laughs> about that. But, um, yeah. And I think part of the, the, part of a good hunt is something that you didn't expect. And that, uh, hunt up North was great because we expected the archery opportunities. Um, but it was great to be able to get our our caribou and then come back into town and spend a couple of days in town. And so when we talk about that trip, like you can't talk about that trip without hanging out, uh, at your place at the build site, um, eating, uh, is it a strawberry or cherry, uh, cherry, cherry pie that your, uh, that your wife made and having a uh, whipped cream and, um, all that around the campfire. Like that is definitely part of the memory for sure. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was a lot of fun to see you guys up here. Yeah, seeing as how Keshkan is so far away. Yeah, Abby was was talking about inviting people down. So I'm not really sure why anybody would want to come down here for for blacktail. Steve did, but you have so many great opportunities up there, and there's not really a big ticket item down here that you can't get up there. Going all the way up there for a caribou makes sense. Same thing with moose; you're going to get a ton of meat. Coming all the way down here for a blacktail, not sure, especially when you can get on the road system, drive down, and uh, in the sound they have uh, they have a blacktail down there, right? I know people go uh, go out in their boats. Montague Island is that a thing down there? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Montague and Hitchinbrook Islands down in Val- outside of Valdez. Yeah, those are pretty popular deer destinations. Yeah. I'm not sure what the populations are like there in density versus catch a can area in the panhandle but you know i i think when i come down to come hunt with you for deer it'll be 
more of a destination thing than, than anything. Yeah. Like I've, I've been to Valdez a bunch. I've never been down um, more Southeast than Cordova before. So, it, you know, it'll be something just to check out and check out a different area. And... Yeah. You won't have to worry about hotels, stuff like that. And weird. It'll be, yeah, it'll be, it'll be definitely a good time. So what are you looking at? Uh, we've kind of started talking about hunting and, and making the most of experiences. And uh, so you got your, your sheep hunt this year. Are you really excited about it? Really nervous about it? Where are you at? I'm more excited than I am nervous. I'm not so nervous because I've been in that area. I have some intel from some friends who took a sheep out of there last year. Um, I've talked to some people who have been in the area a bunch of times and showed me different ways to access it. And so I'm more excited than anything else just mm. to actually get a break because last year I wasn't able to take any animal and it broke my like eight year streak of taking something, which was a big bummer. We still have lots of a fair bit of meat, mostly just caribou, some moose and some fish, but it's, it's just one of those things where it's starting to get low and yeah, I'd like to see it replenished, even if it is half a sheep or something. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by big wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I first heard that Mint Mobile offers premium wireless starting at just 15 bucks a month, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them and using their service, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they're the first company to sell wireless service online only. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. For anyone who hates their phone bill, Mint Mobile offers premium wireless for just 15 bucks a month. I was hesitant about having to get a new phone and a new phone number, but with Mint, you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone and your same phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Mint Mobile gives you the best rate whether you're buying for one or for a family, and at Mint, families start at two lines. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Switch to Mint Mobile and get premium wireless service starting at just 15 bucks a month. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and to get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com/waypoint. That is mintmobile.com/waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com/waypoint. Are you uh, both, do you, do you have a Rochambeau? Is it first one that sees it, shoot it? Because you're going with Steve, right? It's just you and Steve, Shannon? Yeah, yeah. He's never shot one. You know, he's talked about maybe he might move out of the state in a few years or something, and he really wants to get a goat and a sheep before he leaves. Yeah. And and so I, I've been telling him for a few years now that it's like, if we see a sheep and it's legal, dude, you, you have first crack at it. I've shot one, you know, doesn't matter to me if I spot it first, I age it, whatever I, I declare it's legal. You go ahead. Yeah, that was uh pretty fun when Abby and I were up uh, in the interior last week. Was it last week, two weeks ago? I don't know. Summer just goes so fast, but looking at sheep and practicing, judging them, trying to count rings, um, looking at the full curl. And the one, one we saw was just ridiculous. That was so clear. And it was nice to see something that was so clear like that. Um, but that's not going to happen. There's going to be everything. It's going to be a lot closer than that. And there were a couple that 
maybe, depending on how you looked at it. And I thought, this is a tough judge game, man. And then if you have a couple different groups and all of a sudden things, they go behind a little bit of texture and they rise back up and all of a sudden that one that was on the left is now on the right. And which one are you talking about? It's pretty chaotic, but it was fun to lay eyes on some sheep and just kind of go through that process. And then be in some sheep sort of country down here, we have um, pretty steep mountains and we have monolithic faces. So it's just sheer rock. And so you're not going to be hiking on that. Uh, the spaces in between or the ways to get up to the alpine are pretty steep, but they have vegetation on it. So as long as you don't slip in the vegetation, you're going to be fine. Whereas up there, it was just all <clears throat> shale, you know, the Alaska ranges. So it's pretty formidable, formidable, formidable. Um, but it's just that shale is it's just a different experience. And it was fun to kind of get up in that sheep country and you look around and think, this is it. This is it. This was like JV sheep country. Cause even the hikes we did out of the Denali national park, you know, you weren't, we weren't up in the, you know, seven, 8,000 range. Um, but you just, you know, you keep going and then you make your way from five to six and six to seven and whatnot. So it was cool to have that first initial, uh, experience, which I know is not anything close to the real experience, but it was, you know, getting up to some mountains, kind of seeing the terrain, looking around, finding some sheep and, and putting some glass on them was, was a lot of fun. So I feel a little bit more confident and they definitely have the bug a lot more to, to go after a sheep. Yeah. They're just exciting animals to lay eyes on, especially in a place like Denali where you see crank or rams where you're like, Oh my gosh, if that thing was in a place where I could actually shoot something like I would be whole body shivering like jesus it's right there it's you know type of deal but a lot of the sheep hunts that i've been on uh, the past few years are just sheep that i've seen while on different hunts the past few years it's like okay take your time pick it apart like immediately know that that ram is a not legal ram and don't waste any time looking at it just keep looking yep those ones are there but just erase them from your memory don't try and make a non-legal sheep or a sheep that's real close legal otherwise you'll just get yourself in trouble yeah i think the access thing was something that was in the back of my head and kind of intimidating because you look at some of these mountains and you think man what's the access point where's the line um but then after being up a couple of those different mountains some in the park some not you can kind of get an idea of okay this would be the approach this is what you do to go to this point i've now been up there and some some of that rocky craggy stuff and kind of see what it looks like there's always going to be variation there's always going to be variety there's always going to be stuff that looks good that ends up not being good you know being cliffed out is definitely a thing but you know putting your feet on some of that territory gives you a different idea and you can look at mountains a little bit differently and think oh okay this is this is where it's at and i also i'm I'm assuming this is because uh some of the rams that we saw um were in the in the park um they were lower on the mountain um you don't necessarily have to get to the top of these things. Um, you can shoot them a little bit lower. They can be found lower, right? Sheep are where they are. They're not necessarily at the top. Is that kind of right? Yeah, that's correct. You know, I, I think that there is a, the way that they kind of operate is that in the morning, early mornings, they'll come down and feed and they'll go and hang back up in the high country during the hot day. And then in the evening when it cools back down, they'll come back down to the valley floor. Um, maybe not down to the valley floor, but down into a lower manageable area. I mean, whenever I shot my sheep, that's what happened is that, you know, we spent, we woke up pretty early one morning, went up, busted up a group of sheep, and then we kept hiking up and around for the rest of the day. And then towards the evening, we jumped back down and 
towards the floor of the valley and started walking back towards our tent. And we just happened to see one um, that was real low. And it's like, holy crap, he's right there. Like he's in, in the grass, he's eating, you know, it's in the, not necessarily tree line because we were still up pretty high, but, uh, you know, he was down way low. Hmm. And so it, there are some great books by Tony Russ um, about sheep hunting and sheep stalking and stuff. And that's what he says a lot is like, if you're far enough away from a group of animals, but are still in like approach distance, if you have to close a distance in a short amount of time, like you can time it to and pattern sheep over a few days. Like you could wait, all right, I'm going to watch these sheep. I think there's a pretty legal one in there, but I'm pretty far away. So I'll watch them today and tonight, see what they do and then make a game plan for maybe tomorrow evening or something. And that's pretty successful. Mm -hmm. So when, uh, your sheep hunt here, you're going to get flown in somewhere or are you walking in? Uh, walking in. Nice. Nice. Is, uh, the getting through the brush and getting through the, I'm sure there's going to be maybe a little bit of timber or a creek crossing brush or the actual mount itself. Which one is the worst to get through? All of the above. <laughs> you know, it's, it's one of the areas that we are, or the area that we're going to go in, um, has a four wheeler trail and it's a trail that I've never been on before, but it, it's like a 14, 15 mile one way hike. And we're going to, um, bring game carts and I'm going to rig up a climbing harness to my hip and, um, clip it onto the front of the, or clip the front of the cart onto my climbing harness and just put my backpack on there so I can just pull it behind me. And hopefully that'll work. Hey, that's like Oregon you know, trail style. So be it. Yeah. I, I mean, instead of pounding your legs fresh out of the gate for 15 miles or so with 60 pounds on your back and, you know, maybe you can pull it behind and make it a little easier. And then when it comes time to pull one sheep, maybe two, if we're really, really lucky, you know, instead of having 120, 130 pound packs each, you know, you could put like 40 pounds on your back and then put the rest on the, on the game cart and pull it all out. If that works like that. And, so nice. we're, we're trying something that I haven't done before. And so it, it'll be quite interesting to see. Is it, I mean, I don't want to get anywhere even near, um, identifying where you're going, but, um, is, is it, there's a, there's a four wheeler trailer there. You're not taking a four wheeler down to it, up to it or wherever you're going, or yeah. is it a, um, there's a trail there, but you can't use motorized vehicles during the hunt time. You can't use them during the hunt time. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that's the thing down here is you're looking for logging roads, looking for access to the alpine, but things grow in so fast here. So it looks like it's an open uh, place. You can just walk on the road, no sweat. That uh, image came from the uh, space photo photographers a couple of years ago before things grew in, and now it's totally alder choked, and it's hard enough to walk through it, let alone get a four-wheeler through it. Um, if you do happen to find uh, old ATV trails or trails around there, I know on Onyx there's a whole bunch of like winter trail type stuff that's marked on there that may or may not exist. Um, does that stuff get grown over pretty quick, or is it pretty? Uh, oh is yeah, there longevity? It, it, if it's if it's not a popular area that also has other opportunity for people to go and recreate at, those trails pretty much you know, you can call them a trail and especially winter trails. It's like, those things are 
people are driving snow machines over like four feet of snow. So it's like what might be a trail in the winter. Mm-hmm. It's just a overgrown brush in this in the fall. Yeah. What were you? So you chose the spot based on stuff that you've scouted, stuff that you've heard, read about, or just fascinated with uh, the the mountains. So th- these particular set of mountains that I'm going to is kind of near and dear to me because it's like it's where I, I took my first sheep at. It's was my first like real sheep hunt um, six years ago, and you know I just fell in love with the area. And it's it's a cool, low density um, area, and it's it's just the mountains are huge. It's amazing. It's beautiful. It's it's just a great place to go, and especially having uh, a couple friends of mine who went in there last year on some intel I gave them and shot a sheep and they were like, Oh yeah, there's, there's some in here. Nice. Might as well come back next year. Yeah. And so I, I told them about it and they were going to go in again this year, but I told them I was going in. So like, all right, we'll go find somewhere else. And so that's kind of a nice, um, nice friend of mine to give me all that intel and then give me the room to hunt. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, having someone to to help verify what your plan is is a pretty important thing. It doesn't mean that it's gonna like work out, but it's so nice to be able to have some sort of um, validation that hey, this is a good spot. There's there's a chance here. Like what what you're looking at is is correct. You you're on the right track. That's such a that's a huge thing to have going in. That's what one and of the things that when I've been looking at, at, at sheep, potential sheep um, spots, you know, people aren't going to talk about sheep spots. So I could be going up this little spot and there's nothing there. Or, or yeah, you're an amateur. If you'd think that this would happen, there's always talk of people walking in. So you choose a walk-in spot. Well, you shouldn't have chose that walk-in spot because that walk-in spot is there where everybody walks in, or this is too easy of a walk-in spot. And then you have the whole idea of, you know, sometimes you expect everyone to use this spot so you don't go there and no one else really goes there. And so it actually would have been a decent spot to walk in and you didn't have to work that hard. It's just a, it's a crazy exercise of thinking and overthinking and, and doubting and guessing. Yeah. And I think if, if you're not going in to especially sheep areas with that kind of a mindset, I I think you're looking at it wrong because there should be a lot of pressure on, on you in the mental aspect to be able to go farther and, and to keep going and push past discouragement and frustration and potential failure to make it out there. And especially with all the sheep numbers um, that have been declining around the state and everything, you know, it's a lot of people are like, ah, I'll wait till it rebounds in 10 years or whatever. But it's like, if you don't get out there, you never know what you're going to see. And, you know, of course some Rams still live every winter. Yeah. Some are still legal. I mean, they're still out there. That's a scary thought to think. Um, I'll just wait till the population rebounds because all of a sudden, man, I'm 42. I, I yesterday I was 33. It seems like it just things go fast, especially when you have something good to look forward to. So every spring you have something to look forward to, and then summer, and then it just goes so fast. Individual days seem like they're really long, especially during winter. But collectively, everything moves so fast. And so if you push things off, all of a sudden you've pushed things off to the point where you're not necessarily or able to do things anymore. Or you've established this habit of not doing things, not taking advantage of opportunities. And you just have this long list of stuff that you wish you would have done. But there was always something to, to, to provide an excuse. And 
Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of it makes me uncomfortable. There's a lot of parallels between hunting and parenting. I I think when it comes to the the phrase, the days are long but the years are short. Mm. And yeah. What I mean by that is, you know, I'll, I can remember when my kids were just babies, just the other day, and it's like, crap, my son's going to be eight, my daughter's going to be four. It's like, where is the time gone? And gosh, I want to spend time with them, but I also have to build a house and God, I want to go hunting and I just want to go backpacking when it's just, there's not enough hours in the day. Yeah. I was listening to a podcast that, um, um, it makes total sense. I just never thought about it in this regard, but by the time it was from the parent perspective. So it was like, appreciate the time with the kids because when your kids graduate high school or when they turn 18, um, you will have had like 90 to 93% of your entire time with them will be over because at that point, once they leave the house, you know, it's not a, you know, you're, you're around them the entire time. You're with them the entire time. The total minutes spent, most of them are already spent by the time, uh, the, the kid graduates. And I looked back and I thought, yeah, man, I, after, after I graduated high school and left, I saw my parents, you know, once or twice a year, I would go, uh, go back to Cloac during the summer and had a lot of fun up there. Um, but sometimes they were on vacation and so it didn't really match up. But most of the time I had with my parents was, was when I was younger. And obviously that makes total sense. But then you come out on the back end and think, man, that's, I have a limited amount of time left with my parents. Um, dad's passed away and, um, but I, I think about that and I try to, um, you know, take advantage of the opportunities I have to spend time with mom and, and call her more and appreciate her more while she's, while she's here. It's just kind of a crazy thing to think about. Yeah, it really is. It can kind of get, get me spun up thinking about that kind of stuff, especially for my kids. Cause it's like, it's, it's having kids for me was something that I have wanted to do for most of my life. And I knew from a young age that I wanted kids pretty early so that because my dad was 41 when I was born. And, you know, by the time that I was of age to go hunting and have my own job and time off and money to do stuff, you know, he's like, ah, he's like, I'm, I'm kind of out of it. I'm getting a little older. And then now that he's had a bunch of health complications over the past six, seven years, it's like crud like i can only go on like small fishing trips with them and i appreciate those when i can but it's like i want to be able to be there if my kids get into hunting to be like hey come on i'll, I'll take you out let's go after work and you know we'll go do this or whatever and it's it's something that's always kind of in the in the forefront of my mind yeah if abby and i have kids i'll be one of those old dads too and so that's one of my motivating things that, uh, I need to be viable. I can't just be, uh, this slow taper. Uh, I need to be viable cause I want to be able to, you know, play catch and go hunting and do all those sort of things, um, as the kids are growing up. So yeah, it's, it's very motivating to take care of yourself cause you're not as pliable as you are in the twenties and in thirties. It's, it's important to take care of yourself. Yeah. I think that's a big generational difference that, you know, my dad was born in 1949 and stuff. And so I, he'd already raised like I have siblings that are 11 and 12 years older than I am. And so he already raised a mm. few kids and you know, then I came around then his focus wasn't kids. Yeah. And I, I don't knock him for it, but it's, I know what I wanted to do differently. And I, I want to at least give my kids the opportunity that if, if they want to hang out with me, that I'll be able and ready to. Yeah. 
That's an interesting thing to think about when you start to analyze or reflect upon your childhood. You look at what your parents did, and it's not that they did things wrong. It's just that you take the information and you think, okay, I would do this differently. That doesn't mean that you don't appreciate what you had or that, like I said, that there was anything wrong. Just, okay, maybe I'll, I'm going to try this method because um, everybody just does the best they can within the context in which they live. So, um, yeah, there's some... And no one does it right. And no, yeah, no everyone's... Can parent yeah. right. <laughs> you, know, yeah. you think you're going to be the best and you're going to give your kids some kind of trauma or whatever and, you know, they're going to be like, man, this part of my childhood sucked. And it's like, really? It's like, darn, I thought that was going to be good. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's impossible because you don't know. You can have a plan, but then... I know the only thing I have to compare it to, because obviously I'm not a, I'm not a, a parent, but uh, as a teacher, you look at what you think will work with kids and it doesn't. And you have to scrap that and uh, it's, it's, it's crazy anyway. Um, so talk to me about, uh, opportunities. It was, you know, you and I have been talking back and forth about, um, sheep this morning, but, uh, the last couple of days we talked about other opportunities, caribou and moose and whatnot. And Alaskans can get a lot of tags, but there's not a lot of things that mesh well. And there's not a lot of really good opportunities. Um, unless you have a lot of money to fly out somewhere. Abby and I were talking last night about moose potential and, you know, you and I have talked about a spot that might potentially have a moose. Um, but the best way to get a moose is to spend a ton of money to fly out somewhere and do one of those floats. So there is an opportunity for me if I'm willing to pay a ton of money, but I'm just not. And same thing with kind of the caribou. You know, there's the the two most famous uh, Alaska caribou hunts, if you can't do a flyout, are ones that are hugely advertised. And as a result, the amount of people kind of make those hunts, the 40 mile and the, and the haul road, uh, not what they were and not as potentially enjoyable as they could be. Um, so where are you at with the availability of tags and good hunting opportunities here? You know, everyone thinks of Alaska as, as like, especially people who are from out of, not from here, you know, they can think like, oh my gosh, Alaska must just be crawling with critters everywhere. I, you know, I don't have to work that hard. Like my the opportunity will be there. It'll present itself if I'm just there. But it's it's one of those things where it's like, you got to factor in how much time do you have? Okay. What do you want to accomplish? What do you want out of the trip? How much money do you want to spend? And what does my time look like? You know, you only have 40 hunting days for everything and they all overlap for the most part. And you just have to be able to weigh against like what your past experience is, or do I want to try out a new area or do I want to go and up this river or wherever and scout beforehand during the summer and maybe bookend it with a fishing trip and also look for moose or something at the same time. And, maybe think about coming back, but it's, it's just one of those things where it's like, I think for residents, you know, your experience dictates where you're going to go and trying to find a new area or go off some Intel that someone gives you is it's a double-edged sword. Cause it's like, Oh man, he said it is, he said it's good. Or he said it can be good. But then I come up here and I don't see squat and man, how much money did I spend? And you know, it's, it's just tough. It's like, do I stick with the same old and try it? Or do I take a chance and, and potentially fail and, you know, but still get out. And it's just all dependent on, for me, what needs to happen. 
Yeah. Like, do I need to come out with, with meat? And if I do, it's like, okay, how long can I wait? Or, you know, can I risk for me? Cause like, I love the 40 mile country. It's beautiful, beautiful, historic, historically rich area. Um, and it's like, do, do I try and push it in the fall or do I just try and see if there's a winter quota and then go that way and have less pressure and everything. And it's, it's I think you just have to weigh what you want more than anything. Yeah. Yeah. The, the money that it would take to go up there and do the 40 mile herd on the opener would definitely be worth it. But then you start to consider all the other factors and what do I want the hunt to be? And I don't want the hunt to be a whole bunch of people with ARs or you've talked about people who have shot caribou and they walk up on the caribou and the caribou has already been shot multiple times. That's not the experience that I want. <laughs> that There's nothing about that that almost dangerous sense of hunting that appeals to me whatsoever. And uh, the memory that sticks in my head about the Hall Road hunt was that uh, Ryan was making a stock um, on a bull, and I was and I was watching it, and two other guys came from a different direction. One guy was, was stalking it, so that guy got there first. Um, and I thought, man, this, they must not know that we're here. I, they can clearly see me. They can't see Ryan down there in the – in the, in the brush, it's trying to make the, the stock, but we're all looking at this, at this caribou. And then it bumps, the guy doesn't even get a shot. It bumps towards me. And then all of a sudden I might be the person who has the shot and it stands broadside just on the top of this little lip at 60 yards. But I don't know where Ryan is. Ryan's down over this, the, down over the lip. So if I miss or get a pass through, where's Ryan at? And I wouldn't want someone shooting in my direction. So I don't, I, I was about to draw and I think I can't take this shot and it spooks a little bit more than the guy that was up behind that was spotting for the two other guys that were kind of corking us that caribou goes. Now all of a sudden that guy has a shot. That's one of my memories. And I, when I think about hunting caribou on the tundra, I didn't think about, you know, five people almost getting a chance at this one bull, just that sort of. Like it's the last one up there and you know, who's going to be able to get it. It's man, different experience. Uh, glad that uh, we ended up getting bulls and we ended up getting bulls in a spot where, you know, no one else was around. So there wasn't that frantic sort of pressure, but man, I, if I'm going to spend the money. It's worth it to go there, but only if those conditions are something I'm really going to enjoy. I don't want to be out there with that. I have to, I, I got to take the shot and who knows. And if this thing's going to get shot before, am I going to get rolled up on? Like, who knows? Yeah. You can think about it like five people to one caribou in that fairly low density, that time and area in which you were for that one caribou. But if you amplify that into a different magnitude for the 40 mile, you know, you could have shit. There's 200 caribou but there's also 2000 people here that see those two 200 yeah. caribou. And it's like, well, they're going to get shot at, then they're going to go run to the West and then they're going to get shot. Then they're going to run back to the East and then they're going to get shot. Then they're going to go South and they're going to get shot by another group of people. And it's just like these poor caribou just get pushed around sometimes. Yeah. And it's just, it's like, yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Not feeling it. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm not sure. I, I think we might. Um, we're we're going to keep talking about the the moose and uh, caribou opportunities. I'm going to get on the phone with a biologist uh, again today. I talked to one yesterday uh, briefly, and you know it's nice to talk to those those guys and get them a get a, get an idea of of what's uh, the pressure, whether or not it's a viable option, 
whether or not it's worth the time, what the likelihood of, of making the most of the hunt is. Um, and then, um, so, um, we might end up just staying down here and just taking some time to really go after, uh, a mountain goat. So it's not a rushed weekend program because, uh, it's kind of a tough one. If you have, if you go weekend plus one day, that's, that's kind of tough for the goat because you got to pick your peak, get up there, assume that it's there, make it happen and get back down. So that doesn't leave a whole lot of room for any sort of air or weather or fog or anything like that. So we might just, uh, take the days and, and have a really good, uh, mountain goat hunt for Abby. So, but, uh, yeah, I, yeah. I wouldn't blame you there. And, and the way that I've always, whenever I talk to a biologist, you know, you got to think that there's probably a hundred other people calling that same office, asking for information. And, you know, if you're like, you ask about a hyper specific area, they might have some more insight for you. But if you also think that if maybe five other people ask about that specific area as well, that he's given that exact same information to them. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, you could have now more people push in or everything, but it's fishing game is a good resource to be able to call and just talk to someone local. And maybe they're the person that even flew the surveys or whatever. But at the same time, I, I think you should take it with a grain of salt because yeah. I, I remember calling down to a uh, another fishing game office and asking about a, a drainage. And I was like, "Hey, I want to go check out this area." And they're like, "Well, why don't you, why don't you go down this creek? There might be something there." And it was the worst creek I've ever walked <laughs> in my entire life. It took me like two days to walk like ten miles, and it's you're taking your boots off a dozen times during the day, and it's just like this is the worst. That's funny. Not really funny. Well, it's funny now. Was at the time, I'm sure. Yeah. If I wonder, I always think back and wonder if that biologist has ever been back in there. Because if he is, mm. if he has, he'd be, he'd be like, yeah, I'm not going to recommend this area for people to go. Yeah. I've had some people talk to me about this specific creek that I have in mind, and um, I'm like, have fun. I was like, just so you know what you're getting into, it's gonna be death. Yeah. Yeah, I think the specificity is important. So I try to be as specific as possible. Hey, I'm thinking about this uh, this unit during this time in this drainage, um, and then specific questions about uh, about access, about pressure, about uh, things like that, um, so that he has more or or she has uh, as much information as possible going into it. So it's not, hey, where can I hunt caribou in Alaska? Uh, you know, what's your, what's your budget? How many days? What are you looking for? What kind of experience? Like, do you have gear? Have you been here before? Like all those sort of things, try to kind of front load. So I'm not wasting that biologist's time because their job is not just to talk to me and hang out and, and, you know, be a consultant for me. Yeah. Not being a consultant is, is the key word there for that is you can't look at them and expect them to know have their finger on the pulse of every animal and collared animal in the state. It's like you ask them, where can I hunt care? But they're like, look at the 40 mile, look at North slope, talk to you later. Yeah. And then, you know, that's it. But if you're like, I want to go into this drainage, have like, do you have any idea of it? And they're like, no, actually, but my friend does here. You can call him and you know, then you can get some better information. Yeah. People are pretty helpful. You know, if, if you're nice to them, it's just the basic, you know, treat people well and then all of a sudden uh you know good things can happen potentially so yeah i'm just uh yeah. scanning around on x trying to guess where you're going <laughs> it's a big state it's a big state it is i'll show you after the fact yeah 
yeah, yeah. Yeah, we need uh, we need to make something happen. You need to get some plans. You say you're on an every other year rotation for uh, Big Hunt? That's kind of what it is right now. Um, in a few years, my goal is to transition to another job where it's a week on, week off. Mm. And if that happens, then that every every other year idea goes out the window. It's like, oh, no, this is a fucking every year thing now. Yeah. Yeah. You take one week off of, and then you got three weeks off, and it's like, okay, I can spend a week at home, and then ten days in the field, and then a few more days at home, and then I go back to work, and it's like, then it's like the best of both worlds. Instead yeah. of trying to take time off and get right out of work, go down there, hunt, come right back, go right back to work, and have no family time or home time. Yeah, yeah. There's plans, and there's also what happens too. I'm, uh, yeah, we'll see what happens. Yeah, like you've talked about in previous podcast episodes that I've listened to about plan A, B, C, and D all the way through Z if you have to. Just yeah. to plan, yeah. but see what happens. Yeah, I'm um, keeping the options open, not getting too uh, too excited about one specific thing and just kind of kind of see, but uh, not drawing the Wyoming mule deer. Uh, it was kind of exciting, actually. I, my first instinct was I was I was excited because that meant we were going to do potentially something big here in Alaska, and it was kind of a weird feeling not drawing a mule deer in Wyoming because I was excited for it, and then I didn't draw it, and I was yes, all right, let's do something in Alaska. You just move on so to Plan B, which ends up being such an amazing Plan B. Even if we don't end up going north for a caribou or moose, you know, something down here, um, but. Well, you probably got work way, coming up, exciting. huh? You got work? Yes, sir. All right. Well, I'll let you uh, get to work. And uh, thanks always for, uh, for being willing to chat on here. You're the first guest of the rebranded On Step Alaska podcast. I'm very honored. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, man. Um, have a good one, and uh, we'll talk to you later. See ya.